greetings in the name of Jesus, my Savior, our that, Savior. That was great. Yeah, that, that was um, better than average right now. That was true. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Really great. Thank you very much. Oh, if you're a student, you're dismissed. Um, happy that y'all are here with us today. Bless you. Um, you want to get us off? Well, yeah, so this is not the way we planned on starting, but that song, that last song, Though You Slay Me, Yet Will I, I Trust You or Serve You, I can't remember uh, exactly, reminded me, uh, it, it is, Chris, indeed, a perfect movement into the sermon, and it reminded me of um, the time, if you've been here a minute, you know that my dad died in January, and he died uh, from a 10-year bout and struggle with Parkinson's disease. So he taught a Sunday school class at another church, a large church, a, 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 a big couple's Sunday school class. And he the biggest in the whole dead gum church. In the whole dead yeah, gum church. That's exactly right. And he, <laughs> he did. <laughs> and he taught it for like 35 years, and he, he loved it, and it was really a big part of his life, huge part of his life. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, at, towards the end, uh, every, I mean, everybody knew he was at Parkinson's disease. Anyway, kind of towards the end of his ability to teach, he got to where he couldn't read anymore. He couldn't really focus and cause couldn't read it. Just, just flat out couldn't do it. So it was supposed to be his last uh, uh, Sunday school class. And he was going to teach his last lesson. And everybody was there. And I went because it was going to be the last one. So it was a thing. And he got up and he opened up. This is a very dignified man. Got up and he opened up his papers and he opened up his Bible. And he looked and he couldn't do it. It just wasn't going to come out. He, could, he forgot he had dementia, and he forgot what he was supposed to do, and he couldn't read the paper. It was real clear to everyone. So then he, he just couldn't do it. So he closed the paper, he closed the book, and he looked at the Bible, and he just looked up and he said, you know, he said, I, I can't read it. And so all I have to say, after 35 years of teaching everybody, he said, all I have to say is, what Job said, do I accept the good, the bad from the Lord along with the good? Mm -hmm. And that was it. It was his last thing to say. And so that's kind of what we're talking about today. And that song really reminded me of that. Thank that you. That time, yeah. I think I saw David Cole in here. Hello, David Cole. Uh, if you like the lesson today, uh, at the end of the service, you can thank David. If you don't like it, then you can you tell can blame him. David. You can tell David too. That'd be great. Um, David and I were taking a long walk a while back, a few days ago. I don't know exactly, and um, we were talking about dating, and uh, not me, him, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, he just somewhere in the conversation he made the statement. He says, "You know, when you're." When you meet somebody and you're attracted to them and you're thinking about dating them, you know, creating a long-term relationship, it's really important that you learn or you discover what they value. And um, in fact, I think, I think he'll remember that I just stopped right there in the middle of the, or on the sidewalk and, and took my phone and I started typing notes just as fast as my little brain could, could do it. And I said, you know, David, 
that, that is exactly right. When you're beginning or considering beginning a, a relationship, a serious long-term relationship with someone, it is incredibly important that you discover what this person values. What are their priorities? What are their passions? What are their commitments? What are their non-negotiables? At the end of the day, these things are who I am. And they're important because we know this to be true. Our values determine and drive our choices and our behavior. And I, I started thinking about that and about our relationship with the Lord. And how, you know, I know most of you in this room. And I know that, I don't care what you say, I know that many of you are considering a long-term relationship with the Lord. You might not word it like that, but you are. You're thinking about, you hear Larry and Charlie talking about this, this person and you've grown up in a culture that talks about him and you've heard about him in VBS or a revival or on somebody on TV. And, uh, and you're considering beginning a long-term, lifetime relationship and journey with the, with the God of the Bible, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would tell you that it is, if it's important that you discover the values of somebody before you begin a journey with them that's going to last 50, 60, 70 years, my goodness how important it is for you to be incredibly diligent in discovering the values of a person that you might spend eternity with. Dude, that's a long time. Um, and let me just say, the reason that's so important if you discover the values of Jesus Christ before you decide to begin a, a lifetime or an eternity journey with Him is because, let me just tell you, His values do drive and do determine his choices and his behavior. In case you're wondering, Jesus' values, his commitments, his passions, his priorities, his non-negotiables, those are the things that drive and determine Jesus' behavior and Jesus' decisions. And so for you to discover what those values are before you begin that relationship, that's a, that's a very, that, David, that, that's a wise deal you said. Um, and I think of all the things that create problems for people, all of us to some degree, some more than others, but of all the things that create problems in our relationship and journey with God, it's that. I don't think there's anything that, that creates more relational problems for us with God than 
The fact that God lets his values drive how he behaves and what he does and what he chooses. Um, we read in the Bible that God is all loving and that he's all powerful and that he's all wise. And we go, yay. But then when he doesn't use that love and that wisdom and that power the way we think he should, that throws us for a, you know, a loop. I mean, it really creates problems for us. If he loves me and he's wise and he's all-powerful, why would he allow certain things or cause certain things or not do certain things? Why would he... And I think it's because we don't know, we don't understand his values. If we understood his values, we would understand what drives him and what causes him to make the choices he makes and to behave in the way he behaves. And um, I think it causes much frustration for us uh, dealing with God's behavior dealing with God's choices, dealing with God's values um, um, because he doesn't operate the way we operate. He doesn't value, or should I turn around and say, I don't value what he values. I asked As you, a culture, we're so uh, accustomed to saying, if you don't meet my expectations, then I'm not going to be in a relationship with you. That seems to be a yes. cultural moray to some degree. And we bring that, we drag that into our relationship with God and say the same thing. If you don't meet my expectations, chop, chop, then, then I, I'm not sure that I want to be in a relationship with you. That, right? Yes, I think that is um, exactly correct. And that's one thing God, you know, I hear people saying, oh, well, God, because God's all-powerful, God, God can do anything. That's not really true, you know. There are things that limit God. God is omnipotent, but he's not all-powerful if you're defining all power as he can do anything. He cannot act in a way that would be in conflict to his values. He, he cannot. It's not just that he won't. He cannot. And I would suggest that we can't either. That's why we need to be careful and really careful about what we do value. That's, a, that's, that's for another day. Um, I asked y'all uh, to read in preparation for our study today, Jeremiah chapter 24 and Jeremiah 29. And um, I was just going to read real quickly just a couple of verses out of uh, the, just Jeremiah 24, the first couple of verses. It says, After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem the king and the princes of Judah, the king of Judah, the princes of Judah, and all the, the upper and middle class people. 
the craftsmen, the, all the smiths, the blacksmiths, and all the other smiths, and, uh, the, and had brought them over to Babylon, the Lord showed me, Jeremiah, this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs were placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, the, like the first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs so bad that they couldn't be eaten. They were worthless. That's what he's trying to say. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs. The good figs are very good, and the bad figs are very bad, so bad that they can't be eaten. Then the, Lord, then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles of Judah. The people that were taken away, the people that experienced not just some loss, but absolute, complete loss, those that suffered not a little pain and suffering, but indescribable suffering, those that were taken away from their families and their homes and their country and their businesses and they were taken as slaves to a foreign land. I will regard them as good. Those whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans, to Babylon. And I will set my eyes upon them. Very important. I will set my eyes upon them for good. And I will bring them back to this land one day. And I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people. And they shall be and I, shall, and I shall be their God. And I read that in my devotions a while back. And it just got me to thinking about, actually, Chris got me thinking about Job. And it got me thinking about Paul. It got me thinking about David and Daniel and uh, the Apostle Paul, I said, and uh, obviously the Lord Jesus but it got me thinking about how absurd that passage of scripture is no one no one no one in the history of the world from Adam and Eve to today would make that statement that God made you wouldn't make it, I wouldn't make it. You've never met anybody that would make that statement. Two groups of people, an enemy army marches into your land, burns your land to the ground, totes off everything of value, and they take away the people, a, 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 a percentage of the people. They take away everything they own, separate them from their families, take them as slaves into a foreign land, and God says about them, that's the good group. 
They're, when I look at their lives, I see good. And the folks that weren't taken away, that missed the, the destruction, missed the enslavement, missed the loss, missed the suffering, I see them as bad. Because don't you know the people that were still in Israel when Jeremiah got this vision, don't you know they were going, Woo! I know it wasn't just luck. I hate to say it, but surely I, I did enough good things that I missed the bad. I missed the bad. Woo! My life is good because I wasn't taken away as slaves. That's what every one of us would think. We would say that the people were good that God says are bad. And we would say that the people that God says are good, we would say that's very bad. And it just made me stop and ponder, what is that story? Not, other than the fact that it shows me that in so many ways God is absurd. Nobody would think that way. Nobody would, would see things that way. But other than that, what does it reveal to us about God's values? What does that communicate to us about how God values things? We see loss and suffering and defeat as always evil and always tragic. Shirley made me watch, um, what do we watch last, who, are we, who was playing? Oh, Miss and um, somebody. Who was it? Who was it? Texas A&M. Yeah, Texas A&M. Which, who's ever heard of Texas A&M? But anyway. Um, <laughs> the whole um, of Texas. Well, yeah, okay. That's who uh, Anyway, um, we were watching this ball game and at the end, I, I intentionally looked when the camera showed the Texas A&M boys, I didn't see one of them going, that was so good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Not one. We always see defeat and loss and pain as evil and tragic and bad. And yet God in this story sees defeat and loss and pain as good. Oddly enough, those that were around Jesus the most seem to see things the same way. Isn't that funny? The people that spent the most time with Jesus on the earth, they actually talked the same way. Give you a couple of examples. Uh, in First Peter chapter two, Peter says, and he wasn't just selling something. In fact, <laughs> please understand, we don't even take up an offering. So I'm not selling. I'm not trying to say I don't have any anointing oil or a little piece of the cross or anything for your hooping cough or your athlete's foot. I'm not selling you anything. Okay, I'm not. I'm not 
But Charlie was, and I were talking about this last night. And uh, <laughs> as I went into the, got into this with her, she said, that's going to be a tough sell. <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? It's an impossible sell. What we're talking about today, I couldn't sell you no matter how good a salesman I was. If you see this and get this and embrace this, it'll be the Spirit of God. Or you won't. It's too paradoxical. It's, 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 the, it's the antithesis of everything that you and I yeah. value and believe and from, from our families to our country to, to our world. We couldn't sell you this. But the Spirit of God is trying to speak to us. Peter says in, first, in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Rejoice if you experience unjust suffering for doing good. For God has called us to this purpose. I don't think he was just saying, you know, put a t-shirt with a big yellow happy face on it and act. He didn't say act happy even though you're not. I think he was as, as sincere as he could be. Rejoice. Rejoice if you are going through unjust suffering. Because that is a part of the calling of God upon your life. Two chapters later, in chapter 4, he says, Since Christ suffered physically or in the body, embrace that same attitude. For whoever suffers in the body or physically is done with sin and won't continue to live just to please themselves, but will also live to please God. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals that come to test you as if it's odd. Instead, rejoice for your participation in Christ's sufferings will reveal the glory of God in your life. Matthew talked like that. John talked like that. Paul talked like that. We'll get into Paul here in just a minute. The people that knew Jesus best and lived the most closely with Him, they seemed to value, at least in this regard, suffering and loss and defeat and pain in a way that reflected God's values in Jeremiah 24 and 29. So my question that I want you to think about in the time we've got left is this. What does God's response to Israel's suffering, those that were taken into captivity, and when I tell you they lived in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, it was a terrible deal. 
Yes, Daniel rose up in power and his three buddies, and yes, Esther became the queen, and and you know there were a few, uh, you know there were, but as a as a nation, as a people group, the seventy years of captivity, they were horrible. And yet God saw that experience from the through the lens of good. And so what does that tell us about his values? And uh, I, I pondered that and I pondered that and I pondered that and I came up with six. Now some of you people that are more uh, biblically knowledgeable and brilliant, you probably will find many, many, many more. Well, I ain't got time to do the six. So it's like, luckily I only found six, okay? Uh, first value that 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 passage communicated to me is this. God, in the, God's value related to suffering. God seems to value suffering. That communicates to me in a very contradictory way that God values me. If you'll notice, as I read those verses in chapter 24, God told them, I'm sending you into captivity. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you, and I'm going to be at work in you, and there'll be a day when I bring you back, and when I bring you back from this loss and this defeat and this suffering, you're going to be different. You're going to be different. You're going to be a different. You're not going to be consumed in selfishness and pride and fear and lust and anger and greed. You're going to come back. And he says in chapter 29 and then in Ezekiel, oh, sucker Bill, what was that passage in Ezekiel? Uh, uh, Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11 is the, is, the, is the sister passage with Jeremiah 24 and 29. He says, I'm going to bring you back. And when I bring you back, you're going to have a new heart. You'll have a heart that is completely different. God is doing something in my life through my loss and defeat and suffering that's good for me because He values me. He values me. He delights in me. He's committed to me. He, he loves me. He loves me because I'm His image bearer. He loves me because I'm his child. And I would just say to you, and I, like I said, I know most of you very well. You still struggle because you've never settled this. You have never settled in your heart once and for all that God values me. You've never gotten, you've heard it, you say it, but you down deep don't believe that. And we must get that settled. Why other would God say in chapter 29, my plans for you are not to harm you, but to give you a prosperous and hope-filled future. It is vital that we get to a place like Job where we don't evaluate or determine God's love based upon our circumstances. 
C.S. Lewis says it like this. I must settle once and for all the reason that I'm loved and accepted and delighted in by God. My goodness and good work or Christ's goodness and good work. That's it. One, one or the other determines whether God loves me or not. My goodness and my work or Christ's goodness and his work. So I get to decide which one of those is going to determine how God sees me. The person who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Read that one more, that last verse, one sentence. The person, this is C.S. Lewis again, the person who has God and uh, everything else has no more than he who has God only. That is a, it's God's perspective. We, that's really hard for us. We think the person who has God and all the accoutrement is better or more blessed or whatever than the person who's suffering and only has God. Well, everybody knows that. Only. Everybody yeah. knows that's true. The family who doesn't have a child at St. Jude is better than the family that has a child at St. Jude. Everybody knows that except God. Everybody knows that a family that has no one in the unemployment line is better than the family that has somebody in the unemployment line. Everybody knows that but God. That seems so crazy. That's, I wish he would listen to us. Everybody, everybody knows that a family that's experienced divorce is not as good, I mean, is not as good as a family that has experienced. Everybody knows that but God. God values me. And God values you. And either my, dis my circumstances prove that wrong or my circum or God's promises prove it right. And so somebody gets to be the boss. My circumstances are God's promises. God values this passage, Jeremiah 24. It teaches me that God values my choices, my freedom. At the end of the day, God created us to be free moral beings. He values these people experienced captivity, loss, suffering, defeat in Babylon for 70 years because they chose to disobey God. Excuse my French, but by God, I'm going to do it my way. And God said, okay. I'm going to raise my kids my way. I'm going to run my marriage my way. I'm going to sleep around and handle my uh, uh, sexual life my way. I'm going to handle my money my way. I'm going to do, do life my way. And God says, okay. God is nowhere in the Bible. Do you see God pictured as somebody that grabs God, uh, grabs people's ear and drags them along? God values my freedom to choose. God values my freedom to experience the consequences of my choices. God will not force or control, but God also will not protect or rescue from our 
from the consequences of our choices. Peter says in chapter 2 of that epistle, live as people who are free. You're free. But don't use your freedom for evil. But use your freedom to serve God. God values me and you. God values our freedom. And He will allow, you know, I want to protect. I spent my life trying to protect my daughter from harm. God won't do that. And I spent my life trying to protect my daughter from the consequences of her foolish decisions. God won't do that. How different God is from me. Number three, God values, you have to listen to me. That passage teaches me that God values my trust in His wisdom and love over my understanding of what God's doing. The people that went into captivity, if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets, they had no idea what God was up to. God values my willingness to trust Him over His commitment to help me understand what He's doing. God is not that concerned about me understanding what He's doing. He is incredibly concerned that I know He loves me and that what He is doing is wise and right and good. But He is not really that... I don't think that there is a biblical priority. I don't see it. That God's rushing and saying, Oh, Terry, I want you to understand what I'm doing in your life right now. He might, he might reveal that to us, but there's a better than, uh, it's a good chance that he won't. Philippians chapter 4 says that God's peace, that God will give us his peace, a peace that transcends our understanding. Not a peace that comes from understanding. Oh, I've been worried and frustrated and stressed out and anxious because I didn't know what God was doing. Now I know what God's doing, so I've got peace. No, the peace that God offers is a peace that transcends our understanding. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your understanding. Submit to God and you will experience a good life. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God says, We are told to focus on what is unseen, not what is seen. And then in the next chapter, chapter 5, He says, We are supposed to live by faith, not sight. God does not value revealing to you most of the things that He's doing in your life. What's God up to? What's God doing in my life? Where is God? He might show you, but He might not. Because that's not one of His values. Number four. Ooh, kind of hurry. God values my heart way more than He values my skin. Well, that'll... Well, anyway, I won't say anything about that. But anyway, God values my heart, which is eternal, 
way more than my skin, which is temporary. I just read my devotions just a couple days ago, 1 Corinthians 15. And the whole chapter is Paul's attempt to convince us, focus on what is imperishable. Don't focus on what is perishable. D focus on what lasts. Don't focus on what's temporary. Focus on what will will we will take into eternity. Don't focus on that which we will live leave in the ground. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does God care about in my life and in your life? Your heart. Your heart. Your heart. I'm so consumed trying to get God to focus on other parts of my body. Other parts of my life. My bank account and my medical records and my marriage and my kids. What's God focused on in your life and in my life? Your heart. Your heart. 2 Corinthians 12. Golly, sucker Bill. He said, Paul says, God gave me a satanic, tormenting thorn in the flesh to humble me. Or you could translate that, to humble my heart. God will even use the devil to impact my heart for good. Well, should that surprise us? God will use a commode plunger just like he will a surgeon's scalpel. He can use the devil, he can use Gabriel. He can use your best friend, and he can use your worst enemy. James says, rejoice when you face various difficulties and trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, which makes you mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Number five. Hard for an American. Hard for a middle class American. God values my long term impact on others good more than he values my personal immediate pleasure. Got something you want to read to us? I do. This is by the writer Emma Mayer. I've learned our pain softens the shell that insulates us from the suffering of others. Our grief allows us to absorb their grief, making us a part of the collective suffering of the world, a suffering known and borne by God himself. In this deepest and most profound connection with others, we can find true joy. Dang I love her idea of the... And we understand it, but I like the wording, of the collective suffering of the world. In that connection with the person who is suffering or when I am suffering, there we find true joy. At the end of the day, God's calling upon your life, Turk, your, li your life, Mike, your life, Larry, my life, Larry, it's the same calling that God placed upon His Son. And that's the calling to become broken bread and poured out wine. And you can't create bread 
or wine without crushing the grain and the grapes. But unless you crush grain and grapes, you cannot create bread and wine. And if you don't create bread and wine, you will never nourish or refresh our dying and broken world. Our ravenous, ravenous world. Jesus, and I want you to hear this. I beg you in Jesus' name to hear it. Holy Spirit, show them. Jesus is not calling you to go to heaven. He is calling you to become broken bread and poured out wine. To the people that you eat dinner with, to the people that you help do their homework, to the people that you sleep with, to the people that you live beside, the people that you work with, the people that you live in the same community with, the people that live in our world. God is calling you to become broken bread and poured out wine. That's why Paul, over and over again, everywhere Paul went, he experienced these incredibly horrible difficulties, this loss, this defeat, this suffering. But he was constantly saying these crazy, absurd, ludicrous things like, yeah, I was thrown into prison, in a Roman prison, which was not a great place to be, just by the way. But it's okay. The gospel is being spread in ways that could never have been spread if I had not been thrown into prison. He was saying stuff like that all the time. I'll, I'll just end with the last one real quickly. God also values our destination much more than He values our journey. God values our destination much more than He, enjoy, than he values our journey. God calls us foreigners and strangers in this life. But He promises that He has prepared a city for us, a kingdom for us, that is glorious and eternal. If we could ever get that right, if we could ever get that, if we could ever believe that, that God, I'm not saying God's not with us, because clearly I'm saying He is. I'm not saying God doesn't care about this journey because clearly He does because He's using the journey to ch change and transform my heart. But at the end of the day, God is not as concerned about my journey. Hey, I'm, I'm a, a stopped at Stuckey's and they were out of pecan logs. <laughs> my life's ruined. And God's saying, dude, I'm trying to take you to Disneyland. I've got, I'm not, we're heading to Disney World and you're crying that Stuckey's is out of pecan logs. Give me a friggin' break. But yet we do it every day. We, our lives are, I show my rear end to my wife every day. Well, I'm not going to comment okay. on that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Multiple times a week. Because things don't go the way I want. My computer doesn't obey, or the cable TV doesn't obey. He goes berserk when that happens. Okay. And I'm not saying God doesn't care. But at the end of the day, His focus is on where He is leading me way more than the journey. 2 Corinthians 4. 
Paul says this light and temporary suffering in this life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are blessed if you are persecuted for God's kingdom's sake, for the kingdom of God is yours. Do you want to read that last deal? Or? I will, sure. This is another C.S. Lewis. He says, The Christian doctrine of suffering explains a very curious fact about the world we live in. Mm. The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us at times by the very nature of the world. The brokenness of the world. That we live in, yeah. But the pleasure and joy and merriment he has still scattered about. We're never safe from harm here. But we have much fun and even some ecstasy. Hmm. And it is not hard to see why. The security we crave tends to lead us to rest our hearts in this world and creates an obstacle to our return to God. While we have a few moments of a happy love or a landscape or a symphony or time with friends, a hot bath or a football game, those have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but won't encourage us to mistake them for home. Mm. There's beauty here and pleasantries and good things. We're blessed with. But mm. perhaps just mm. enough or just so not, not enough, perhaps, to remind us that this isn't home. This isn't home. He delights in giving us joys and pleasures. But he does not want to give us joys and pleasures that make us not want what's better. Home. And we're not there yet. The God of the Bible has convinced me that he loves me, he values me, he's committed to me, and he has poured out his blessings on me. And he feels the same way about you. But he values suffering in our lives. Loss, defeat, pain. And he can use it in ways in my life and in your life that he cannot use anything else. And so either I'm going to see those things as proofs that God doesn't love me or I'm going to learn to see those things as the very tools that God is using to prove that He does love me. I want you to think about that. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And today I just want to challenge you Thank you. God's calling upon your life today is not a calling to go to heaven. I don't think any of y'all are going to go today. I'll be mad if you beat me. Um, I don't think God's calling upon your life today is to go to heaven. I can tell you on the authority of God's word, God's calling upon your life today is to become broken bread and poured out wine in the lives of others, to nourish, 
to satisfy, to bless. I want to be that. I want to be that in your life. I want you to be that in my life. I want you to be that in each other's lives. May the Lord make it so.